You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director, Content and Curation for RSA Conference. Today, we're back to our roots, talking about data protection and applied crypto, a topic that's become front and center, covered daily by the regular business press and even in casual conversations and discussions around securing elections, cryptocurrencies, and all of those myriad of other issues that boil down, quite simply, to data protection. Our guests are two industry leaders who come to us with very interesting backgrounds and perspectives, who are both in the trenches working to keep our systems more secure. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Please introduce yourselves to our listeners. I'm Josh Benelow. I'm the Senior Cryptographer at Microsoft Research. I've been at Microsoft. Well, this is my 25th year now, and uh, my work is focused on cryptographic protocols and especially uh, election protocols and election technologies. And I'm uh, Matthew Scholl, or Matt Scholl, and I am the Chief of the Computer Security Division at the U.S. National Institute for Standards and Technology, sometimes just called NIST. And one of my roles is to work as the U.S. government's representative in creating standards, guidelines, and best practices in information and cybersecurity to include cryptographic standards that are used by the U.S. government. Excellent. Thank you both for being here. Um, Josh, I'm going to direct this first question to you. I know you're serving on the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and uh, Medicine Committee on the Future of Voting, who has issued a very interesting report, and in fact, Microsoft made an announcement last week on Election Guard that I know you were very closely involved with. As I mentioned in the introduction, perhaps the number one issue globally on minds is if elections really are physically secure anymore. Uh, we'll keep the issue of human fallibility and social engineering out of today's discussion, just stay in the technical swim lane. Can you share with our audience your perspective around the current state of election technology? Uh, sure. First, I should offer a clarification. The uh, National Academies Committee wrapped up its work um, last fall. We issued a report actually September, so I guess that's technically the summer of 2018, Unrelated to that, um, Microsoft had uh, an announcement of its uh, election guard offering about work that will be done in um, building a uh, open source, freely available toolkit that will uh, enhance integrity in elections, allow for individual verifiability. Individual voters can check that their votes have been accurately recorded and accurately counted uh, without having to trust the equipment that the election was run on, or the vendors of that equipment, the election administrators, or anyone else. It's, um, in some sense, a democratization of the electoral process uh, in that it allows voters to have control of their own destinies to some extent. So that's what we're uh, trying to work towards, trying to um, enhance integrity and uh, sort of shift the paradigm in the election space to en- enable this technology to be uh, widely deployed and used, we hope. Excellent. So, Matt, with your work at NIST that drives cryptographic standards, thoughts, what, what role do standards have to play in protecting elections? Wow, that's a big question. Um, so, at NIST, 
Uh, we work with the Department of Homeland Security, who is the newly minted sector agency for election infrastructure. And we've also have some legislative roles called out for us to work with the Election Assistance Commission, the EAC, and designing and developing some standards and some guidelines called the Voluntary Voting System Guideline, or the VVSG. And these are some standards for uh, not just security, but also usability and interoperability of voting machines that then the vendors can have a spec to potentially build to with an incentivized program under either federal or state grants to facilitate the procurement of systems that meet these VVSGs. So standards are used to help improve the voting systems as well as to um, help them kind of get into the hands of those local election officials because in the end, it's really a local or state both procurement and uh, implementation issue. And at the federal level, we just kind of do the best we can uh, to assist them there. Sure. Lots of acronyms flying. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Throw the acronyms <laughs> No, no, it's government. I, I expect that. And I know our listeners, um, I've really valued the tremendous work that NIST has done, um, CSF. If I'm going to go into standard, you know, cybersecurity framework, nice. There, there's some wonderful, and I like the technical as well as the human piece, right, that, that you're speaking to there with, with what needs to be done. So thank you. So, Josh, I'm going to shift back to you. There's a lot of steps that are being taken to examine and protect elections. And as, as Matt just mentioned, different jurisdictions do things differently. They don't all approach security in the same way based on budget constraints and other issues. I know you've done some focused work specifically on auditing, and I believe that homomorphic encryption may come to play here. Can you share some thoughts here? Um, so the work that I'm doing on elections is really something that should be thought of as an auditing method. Um, there is work that can and should be done and is being done to some extent to shore up our current election infrastructure. And I certainly uh, support and encourage that in, in uh, all regards. The work that I've been most closely engaged with is called end-to-end -end verifiability, um, and this is a technique that doesn't prevent anything from going wrong in an election, but it can detect if anything has gone wrong in an election. It's an auditing technique that allows voters to check for themselves whether their votes have been counted. Homomorphic encryption is really at the core of what makes this work. Um, and my first dealings with uh, homomorphic encryption or the possibility of homomorphic encryption actually goes back to um, a crypto class that Ron Rivest taught when I was an undergraduate in 1981. And I did a project back then on elections, believe it or not. Um, I've been doing this for quite a long time. And as part of that project, he handed me a paper that he'd written with Len Edelman and Mike Tertuzzo's entitled uh, Privacy Homomorphisms, uh, or uh, I think it was on, on databases and privacy homomorphisms, something like that. So the term actually goes back to Ron and Len and Mike. My use of it was a natural thing when I extended from privacy homomorphisms to something needing actual encryption. 
So that's why I started using the, the term homomorphic encryption or encryption homomorphisms. But uh, credit certainly goes back to Ron Rivest, uh, Len Edelman, and Mike Tertuzzo's back in 1978 or 9, I think, when, when they first did their work on that. But um, homomorphic encryption is about computing on encrypted data without having to decrypt it first. So um, this enables um, potentially uh, extensive computing to be done um, without compromising privacy. Uh, the problem is uh, what we now hear of as homomorphic encryption is sometimes called fully homomorphic encryption, which allows any arbitrary computation to be done, and it's very, very expensive, prohibitively expensive. Um, the kind of homomorphic encryption that's necessary for elections is much simpler because the only operation in an election really is addition. You're just adding your vote to my vote to the next person's vote and so on. It's all just you know, ones and zeros for selection made, selection not made, and we're just adding up those ones and zeros. So if we have an encryption of all of our votes, we can homomorphically combine them into an encryption of the sum of everybody's votes, and that's the tally of the election. And that's the core of this technology and, and um, the thing that everything else is driven off of. Excellent. Matt, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I know your team looks at a lot of different technologies, that current technologies and those way out on the horizon. As with election hacking, we've seen discussions about 5G, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and a lot of other technologies become mainstream conversation. Individually, each of these technologies is powerful, but collectively they have tremendous disruption potential. What's in your crystal ball and what security considerations should products have? Oh, dear. Um, I know, big questions, big yeah, questions. <laughs> yeah, you left me the easy ones. Um, exactly. So, so some of the things that we are uh, working on in some of the crystal ball looks here at Nest, especially concerning cybersecurity, uh, first and foremost is the capability of a quantum machine or quantum computing. We believe we've kind of transitioned a corner from theory to engineering in quantum where the challenges that we face are no longer around the, the theoretical issues, but around overcoming some of the engineering challenge uh, that, that we face in, in building the actual machines. And some very rudimentary quantum machines have been constructed, and so we have some fundamental questions now. You know, does Moore's Law apply? How fast will these uh, scale? Do they scale? Um, and all of these, I think, are, are facing our near future. From a security perspective at NIST, we are extraordinarily interested in what quantum algorithms can do to our current encryption suites. And so our public key infrastructure or some of the ways we exchange cryptographic keys will not be secure once what we call a cryptographically relevant quantum machine comes around, one that can factor uh, enough numbers to make RSA no longer secure. So what we're doing now is developing, designing, selecting, working as a large community to identify what those new encryption technologies are. And while Microsoft is on the phone, I'll give a shout-out to them for participating and, and submitting algorithms and working with us, along with the global community, in, in finding and designing the new algorithms that we're going to need. Because we've kind of been a chicken-and-egg space here. We have to design, build, and then deploy these new algorithms in our current infrastructures 
before the quantum machines come online, because we're going to live for a long time with our current infrastructures before those machines actually become cost-effective and relevant enough for them to be you know, replacing desktops. So that's one thing we're very interested in. You've got a big crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, I got, I just, well, there's more. You want me to crystal I, more? I can. Actually, I'm going to have you peer one more time into that crystal okay. ball. Yeah, because it, it was interesting. As you were talking about quantum, and Hugh Thompson, who's our program chair, he and I always spend a lot of time with the um, submissions that come in, thousands of submissions come in. We read every single one of them. We debate every single one of them with the 100-plus folks that are on our program committee. But quantum has increased, 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 and we've always talked about that tipping point and that point at which we hear it's actually enterprises starting to talk about things versus just vendors talk about things and, and the volumes and, and looking at at what point have we crossed into different territory, which it feels like we have with quantum. We're not at the enterprise stage yet, but we do, we're, we're seeing some of what you're talking about. So, so what else? Give, give, take, take me down another one of those future okay. paths and, and how NIST is looking at it. So, so something probably a little closer in our future is, you know, you had mentioned AI and machine learning and becoming more scientific in our approaches and establishing some standards and some foundational references to allow for repeatable, reconstructable, explainable AI and AI results um, in order to ensure that we have confidence in the knowledge that we're deriving from AI and then how AI is going to change how we view consent and data and privacy and even to some extent some of the foundations of the scientific process, which might kind of get flipped around on its head. And then converge that with, you know, new scale chipsets, whole system on chip capabilities that allow you to push AI capability out to the edges, and you can have AI engines not just in you know, hybrid cloud environments, but potentially you know, on your mobile devices, um, and then integrate that with good pipes that 5G will bring you, and then potential augmented reality capabilities, and things are going to really open up almost cyborg-like for us, but for the good, bringing around a lot of new capabilities and potential. Um, but a lot of questions around data provenance, uh, data accuracy, information derivatives, and all these things that, that come with these big data problems. So I, I think that's going to be an exciting and much more near-term future than potentially quantum might be. Yeah, well, that, that's another one where certainly we've seen, you know, increase in submissions. And in fact, you have know, talked about that one in quantum and the trends piece we put together because, again, and it's, it, it's interesting with that in particular, the first references to AI and machine learning and submissions that we're seeing were in and around it being used um, defensively, and now it's gone to the offensive. And then it goes to you know the the, the business application, and it just I, I agree with you. It, it's exciting, and it's a it's a rolling snowball in terms of the um, the benefit harnessed properly, but putting together those good standards on the back end so that things can be. Um, speaking properly to one another um, is a big and opportunity. We need foundations under our feet. If we're going to both secure AI and use AI for security, we do need some of those uh, baseline foundations and standards and references and capabilities built first. Yeah. Excellent. So, Josh, that feeds actually very nicely to something I wanted to cover with you. Um, and I'll hearken back to a hallway conversation we had at RSA conference, I think, 
three or four years ago, you've been involved with the Cryptographer's Track, which is a super academic, forward-leaning, research-based track um, at RSA Conference. We've had it since 2001, I believe. And you noted for me that people kept wandering into the back of the room to learn something about crypto, right? Because crypto was becoming cool and interesting once again. But that's not necessarily the best way to understand from the common person's vernacular about crypto. So you offered to uh, deliver a Cryptography 101 class at RSA Conference. You've done that the last three years. I'm hoping it's going to be back again in 2020 because it's wildly popular. You take the academic and the challenge and you boil the ocean for all of us and you apply it, which is a wonderful gift that we are so grateful that you've brought to conference. So with all of that, what do you consider to be the most important trends that our listeners should be paying attention to in applying crypto today and for the foreseeable future? Oh, there are so many things to be aware of in crypto today and things that are changing and moving Cryptography um, may well be unique uh, amongst um, technologies and software in particular in that it's the only thing I can think of where I could build a system today that is absolutely perfect. In theory, it is bug-free. It is the best that could possibly be built. And tomorrow, it's ineffective because somebody can discover something new that's not a bug, but it breaks a crypto algorithm, and suddenly something that was built absolutely perfectly, absolutely securely, is no longer secure. Um, so you always have to be monitoring everything <laughs> to, to a large extent uh, when you're building and using and deploying crypto. This is a challenge, absolutely, um, but it's a challenge that uh, we've seen over the years and we've become reasonably comfortable with. Um, we uh, are certainly very much aware of quantum computing, which uh, Matt mentioned and, and talked about earlier, as a threat to some uh, cryptographic methods. And there's a lot of work going on. Again, Matt mentioned uh, some of it uh, at NIST to try to be prepared for the day, if it ever comes, that quantum computation might make some of our current cryptography, which might seem perfect today, vulnerable. Um, so that's one thing we need to be aware of. But um, just new research and almost any topic could find perhaps a better way of factoring large integers, not necessarily even using a quantum computer or a vulnerability in one of our standard uh, ciphers, AES. There's no proof that AES, which is used so widely that it's built into most modern processors, it seems to be a very good cipher. It's gone through a lot of analysis, but there's no proof that it can't be broken. There might, in theory, be something that happens tomorrow. And we just have to be aware and vigilant. I want to second that. And so, you know, our, the, the historical concept of crypto agility, the ability to both, you know, know where your encryption is and, and what it's doing and, and even more importantly, know what it is um, in this context of time and, and capability is, is an important thing that we seem to relearn every time we have to do it, be it a transition off of DES or off of SHA-1 or, or whatever, 
um, but we do historically end up with legacy crypto issues um, that are just both difficult to identify and difficult to change because we have not in the past been as good in our agility in, in making them swappable in the products that we use. Yeah, I, I'm going to chime in and, and add to that. Absolutely, crypto agility is critical. It's something that Microsoft is now working very hard on. It's difficult to do. Um, yeah, but it's not easy. It's, but it's important. And as an example, I'll harken back uh, 15 years, 2004, I believe it was, when Wang discovered um, a break of MD4 and MD5, the, uh, the widely used one-way hash functions at the time, they were devastating breaks. MD4 could be broken by hand, paper and pencil, actually. And this was kind of out of the blue. And Microsoft at that time realized that not only did we not have any real inventory of you know, where MD5 and MD4 were used. We didn't know how often it was used. We didn't know what kinds of things. It was just, you know, here is a, um, a hash function that is broken and should be replaced, and we've got a lot of code that probably uses it. And we wound up starting a process where we did an inventory of not just um, MD4 and MD5, but all cryptographic primitives. Um, we found about a thousand different uses of, of MD5, perhaps 50 different implementations in Windows. And we have, since that time, been doing a much better job of trying to track things. It um, led to the creation within Microsoft of the crypto board, which is crypto experts from around the company who are, are now setting corporate crypto standards and reviewing products and working with product teams to try to enhance their security so that at least we know what's going on and we can try to keep everybody up to the, the most up-to-date standards and uh, hopefully be on top of things um, as part of the, the agility story. So that, you know, If something happens, we'll at least know where to look and what to do and hopefully have the code be agile enough so that we can make changes fairly rapidly. So listening to you guys talk, <laughs> I feel like I'm in end game, and I've I've just emerged from the quantum realm. I, I seriously, I'm like, oh, it totally reminds me of the Avengers. I'm I'm in the Avengers. I need to go back. I need to gather, gather, gather. Um, so here we are, gathering the stones, trying to make humanity safe. Yeah, I don't Matt, know what episode you're in, but one of those didn't end well. Everything ultimately ends okay right oh, no now. Spoilers. I, right. There are no spoilers. There are no, my, my daughter, her single word for it, she came home. She said, Mom, it was satisfying. It was, and that was the perfect word. Yes, no, there are no spoilers here, but it's the quantum realm, right? That's how yeah. the last one ended. The, you were, we've got the quantum realm here, and we're truly here in this conversation. Okay, so take me five years out, Matt. What matters the very most? What matters the most to our industry of professionals. And I love how eloquently you gave a shout out to the global community, because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. RSA conference, it's all about the community, getting these, these bright minds together to talk, to mash up, to understand and intersect with one another. What matters the most to our global community and what can we do best to contribute to the future? So five years, right? Is that what you're saying? Five years. I'm, I'm, only, I'm only taking us five years. Okay. So a lot of the ways we try to think about these future thoughts is to look at historical trends and technology trends over time and 
sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. But one of the things that we're seeing is historically things all converged to your mobile device. And your mobile device was your interface to the digital world. You did it all through your phone or your tablet or whatever, your laptop. But that was your sole interface. And now we're starting to see a divergence of where you interact and how you engage in the digital world. So five years, if they get the bandwidth up and running in some 5G applications, it's going to be all these other communities that are going to just start to become hyper-connected. And your phone might be the gateway or the portal or the primary interface, but now, you know, cars are the great example. Um, but there's, it's going to be infrastructure. It's going to be clothing. It's going to be all these other items in our life that are going to become uh, connected and generating data for us in the next five years. And so what we can do as a community is the data community, the IT community, has been wrestling with this both successfully and unsuccessfully for a while now. It's brand new for a lot of these other sectors who are starting to look at this. And so we have good experiences. Um, Josh was just talking about, you know, the crypto board and lessons learned in ensuring crypto agility and understanding where some of those critical security functions exist. You know, these are good things that we can help those folks not have to relearn to some extent. So some of these are starting to, even to the extent of commercial space operations, low Earth orbit commercialization is now going to explode as, uh, you know, Amazon just announced their mission to the moon as well as large mega CubeSat satellites that are going to operate the 5G network. So I think we're going to see a lot of exciting things, I hope, in the next five years, most of it leveraging new aspects of connectivity. That's my guess. Josh, do you want to look in your crystal ball five years? Um, five years is a difficult timeline. Um, yeah, short. Yeah, it is short. Um, the quantum timeline is a little bit longer, and that's why you know we have the ability to start to prepare now and the work that's going on at NIST to try to look for uh, quantum-resistant algorithms is you know, based on the timeline of this might happen in 10, 15, 20 years. Um, something that might happen in five years, you know, if it's not expected now, even if we start getting an inkling of something now that's going to be you know, a, a new threat in five years, it's very hard for us to be ready <laughs> five years from now. So in terms of security threats, I'm not going to try to look at a crystal ball and say, you know, what's out there to be expected, because if it's expected, we're already working on it. Um, it's the things that are unexpected that concern me. Um, as far as positive technologies, I can sort of swing back to uh, the election work and say that I'm very in encouraged and hopeful that five years from now we'll have you know, widespread use of verifiable elections and you know, maybe uh, you know, develop other tools and other things that people can use for good in other ways. But on the threat side, uh, it's so hard to see what might be coming in five years. People are very clever. Um, and that, 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 that's uh, good for many things, but it's hard when you're trying to defend against clever attacks that you haven't seen yet. Indeed. Pe people are clever, but happily our global community is 
super clever, too, and appreciate both of you for being active contributors to the good of the global community. So in my five-year crystal ball here, actually five-day, you got to see Endgame event. If you haven't seen it yet, Matt, you have to see it. We're going to circle back. You're going to tell me if your word for it is satisfying, because it is. Um, yeah, my, this... my teen has it on my list for, for this week, that and the Pikachu movie as well. Your teen and my teen would get along very well. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this has been a satisfying conversation indeed, and I look forward to RSA Conference 2020. You know, we added a lot. We had blockchain and applied crypto. We also had the protecting data and supply chain ecosystem. That was a new track this year. Um, there's a lot happening here, and luckily our clever global community is continuing the conversation, is continuing to educate one another and work together. And I'm so grateful to both of you for being part of that, for being guests today on our webcast, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thank you, Britta. It was great yeah. fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. 